0: Well, let's talk about Holy Orders. Um, And this is really important for us because it's one of those things that sometimes can be unnecessarily a roadblock. You know, people from other traditions often are really put off you know, by orders. And let's find out what they really are. Sometimes they're good reasons to be put off. And I think we should look at, you know, we're both ands. So we have to make sure that we understand what we really believe about Holy Orders. So first of all, we're going to do four different topics. I invite your questions as we go along. First, we're going to talk about some background. Then we're going to talk about what ordination actually is. We're going to focus in on each of the three orders of ministry. Church tradi- churches saying traditionally there are three orders of ministry. And the ordination process. Okay, so let's start here first with some background. Is first of all, one of the things in the New Testament is they use perfectly ordinary everyday terms that later on to be used in a specialized use. For example, if you if you deal with a law, sometimes they'll say this is being used as what they call a term of art, I meaning this is a technical term, not just uh, you know not the uh, matter of fact uh, you know term we might say. It you know it actually has this very specific meaning. So originally these are just ordinary terms. Apostolos, with apostle, is simply the Greek word for an envoy, somebody who's been sent on a mission. That's all it means. It's a regular word. You know, you send somebody on a mission, like uh, someone who's been commissioned to do something, sent on a mission is simply an apostle, somebody who's been sent. So as an ordinary Greek word. Okay, another Greek word was presbyteros, which means elder. You know, um, literally an old man is an old man, like in Latin, Senex. You know, as an old man. So I get senatos is a place where old men come together. Senate. That's what I mean, senatos. <laughs> Senility comes from, I don't know where that could come from. But... <laughs> But in any event, you're you're with me on this. So that simply means an old man. And of course in the ancient world, uh, more so than we have today, is remember one of the comparative advantages you had in a world with, um, just generally speaking, where you didn't have much technical progress, you know, it was very, very slow, was by definition experience was the supreme value with knowledge. Now it's, you know, in my lifetime, you know, it comes that you have all these people just coming in out of school often will know more about computers or something like this. You know, it's not automatically the case anymore, but in any ancient society, the people you look to know stuff, and I don't just mean in this wisdom sense, in the sense of just in anything, mm-hmm. where people have been around because they would, they, by definition, experience was, was the greatest. Um, mm-hmm. And that's uh, actually that's what an expert means. Expert comes from Latin. Paritus uh, and Latin means somebody who's had a, literally, had a lot of experience, so expert. Means coming from their experience. Somebody's had a lot of experience. An overseer, episcopus. episkopos. I love this. If you haven't studied any Greek, epi means above, okay? And skopos is like a scope on a rifle, seeing. Like remember we talked about synop, you know? So, so it means one who looks out over. Like you know a periscope, right? You mean, peri means going around. So a periscope in a in a, in a uh, submarine, he goes around, Perry around, scope. So episkopos means and overseer, one who literally looks over. Now, they had two different senses in Greek. One sense we think of overseer like a boss, right? Like a taskmaster. But it also meant someone who's just looking out. You didn't have to look, keep, keep, hey, keep looking. You're like a shepherd was an episcopos in both sense. You know, he sort of bossed the sheep around, but he's also one who's looking out for them, keeping his eyes open above the whole flock, you know, looking out there. So that was, you know, um, an overseer. And then a deacon literally meant just servant. You know, someone's around to help. You mean a helper, someone around to help. So those were ordinary terms in the, uh, originally, but we ended up using them in a specialized sense, which is typically what most societies do. They take terms that originally were ordinary terms, we start using them in a very specialized way. So let's talk about the apostles. The, original, the apostles were originally, the term was used for Jesus' inner circle. I love this. Um, you know, he had a lot of disciples. Remember one time he, he um, actually commissioned 72 disciples. But in that group of, and disciples is simply a regular Greek and Latin word. They're, they're, they're the two words are almost identical in Latin and Greek. Meaning a learner. We'd say a student. Okay. Uh, uh, but it means simply a learner. But here of those, he, in that inner group of learners, he said he went up on the mountain. By the way, this is after a whole night of praying. The scriptures really emphasize that to us in Luke, that he spent a whole night praying about this. So the emphasis is this is coming directly from God. Yes, this is a call from God. It says, he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve. So notice the fact they're called by God, appointed, okay, so that they might be with him and might send them out to preach and have authority. So they're on a mission. Sense. That's One of the, uh, the uh, Gospels actually tells us he called them apostles, meaning sent. Hmm. Okay, yeah, so they're, that's why they're, they're called the apostles, the ones who were sent. Later on, though, after the. Now, that was, a, we're going to find out, it was a very specific group of people. Precisely, there are only 14 people in human history who belong to that group. Now, but what we'll, have, we'll see what they. But what it came to be used, since the apostle was also a regular Greek term, it came to be used for church planners. Because they were people, on, they just would go up. So I'm sitting in a room filled with a lot of apostles here, you know, in the sense of the earliest church, and you have you gave the church apostles and things. It's not always speaking of the twelve apostles. It's often speaking of these people who are just itinerant church planters. We see both. We see sometimes it's an office like I'm one of the, the the apostles, you know, sort of a capital T, like Paul saying I'm I'm no, no inferior to the other apostles as opposed to itinerant church planters. Okay. So it says here, for example, in the Didache, but concerning the apostles and the prophets, act according to the decree of the gospel. So we're totally not talking about the prophets in the Old Testament here. Let every apostle who comes to you be received as, a, as the Lord. But he is not to remain more than one day or two days. And if there's a need, uh, and when the apostle goes away, let him take nothing but bread until he lodges. This actually became sort of a problem, is that some people were just making sort of a, uh, a side trade of this. And they would sort of come, oh, I'm on a, I'm a traveling evangelist. I mean, I'm, 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 a, I'm a church planner. And they say, look, they come, you want to receive them nicely, but three days and you're out. You know, you need to be moving on with your traveling ministry. So we know this is not the 12 apostles. We're talking about this other group. Okay. Now, who are the elders? Uh, The elders, uh, we say, were appointed in each church. The important thing, we have this, for example, at the first missionary journey that Paul has. What does it say at the very end of the journey? They're about to go their way back. It says, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church... With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So what the apostles always did when they set up a church, they appointed a leadership structure. You know, it wasn't like a uh, book club. You know, you just try to get together and talk about Jesus. They appointed an actual leadership that they appointed. Okay, they appointed elders with prayer and fasting and committed them to the Lord. And it says, like in Creed, it says, we're talking here to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So the church from the very beginning had a leadership system, and notice that they they were the ones who chose who these were. It's very important, though. the idea that you're going to appoint the elders. It wasn't, you know, they ask them who they'd like to be their leadership structure. They were appointed. Okay. Now the overseers. The term overseer is used interchangeably with elders in the actual New Testament. I'll give you an example. Look at Titus 1, 5 through 7. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might uh, put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach and a husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer has got... Notice he just slipped. Because they're, in, they're both meant the same thing. They're both used indiscriminately for people who have this role. Because he's just saying, appoint elders, and he's talking about who need to be an elder. He says, for, as an overseer, God's steward must be above reproach. And here, when Paul's saying goodbye to the elders at Ephesus, notice what he starts out by saying. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to him. Notice they're always a group. It's more than one elder. It's a group of, of elders in each church. Okay. Uh, came to him, and when they came to him, he said to them, "Be pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. So Luke has described them as elders, and Paul calls them overseers. So clearly the term is being used interchangeably. Then deacons have a separate role. but uh, f- They're separated from, but it's associated with that of elder. So in addition to these elders in every church, there are also people who are servants in a special way. Yeah, they were helpers, but they were sort of official helpers. Okay, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons—literally overseers and servants, you know—but we used to. But it means this is not just servants. This is uh, obviously a post. Mm -hmm. So, what are the qualifications? What is the career track to be an apostle? Well, this is not. uh, This is not. uh, This is like trying to be the next Michael Jordan. (laughs) First of all, you can be you can be selected by the Lord Jesus Himself. And he's done doing that. Okay, that was the original 12. Then you say, well, gee, what if one of them moves on? Well, we do have a replacement for Judas with Matthias. And notice (coughs) they said the categories when they were looking for an apostle was two things. Somebody who actually knew the Lord and said they'd been through the entire public ministry, we have it here, with Jesus, and were witnesses to the resurrection. So they could speak, they're eyewitnesses, you know, and not just eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus, they were also eyewitnesses of his teachings. So, the men who have accompanied us from all the time that the Lord Jesus went in among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he is taken up from us, one of these must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So, that was the only person who's ever filled a slot that way, you know, in that, in that special sense of the limited number of apostles. Obviously, no one would now be in that status that our Lord has returned. And one exception is Paul. In this case, Paul usually is a witness of the risen Jesus, appears to him directly, the risen Jesus. And he emphasizes, though, that what does he share with the others? He's a witness of the risen Jesus, and he's called directly by God. Notice the first two, say, when they when they chose people, they, they didn't just give the qualifications. Remember, they chose two people who met the qualifications. Then what did they do? They, they, they called on God. You make a choice. And they, they picked lots, like you would in the Old Testament. It's your choice. We can't do this. The appointment comes from you. This is an important notion that, and we'll take it with ordained ministry, it comes from God. That's why, if you notice, every time we have an ordination, one of the things you're asked in front of God is you're, you're swearing before God that you've received this call. You're saying, Are you a you know, witness that you have received, received a call from God? And the church has to discern that call. We'll come back to that, et cetera. And then, uh, so that's it. Those are the, so there were 14 people who were in this special group. You with me on that? Okay, 14 here. Now, what are the qualifications we're given for elders and overseers? And here we have the classic one from Timothy, saying, it's trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. He desires a noble task. Um, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, Sober that's been much disputed. I think I personally think what they're saying is uh, he hasn't been divorced or remarried. That he's you know basically uh, polygamy would not be much a, of an issue in the Jewish uh, uh, world, I think. Of. Uh, but it could mean there's an argument about it. But probably just you know he, he's st- because they're looking at stability. So look, he's raised his kids, etc. Look, the guy's stable. <laughs> you know he you know hasn't married mul- with, with, married multiple times, etc. So he's saying, if anyone is, uh, therefore there must be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, nor violent, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. They're going to emphasize that because, again, inevitably there will be financial implications. And that's always one of the two things that are going to be problems for us our sex and money, always with temptations. Think of ministries that have gone bad, people who have had wonderful ministries from God. So they are saying, we have, have got people where this is not their special problem. We all have... have temptations and things. But some people have particular temptation with these two things saying well we gotta make sure that we have people that this is not the case because they're good it's like, you know, you can't be a alcoholic at work at a bar. You know, they're just this is just not feasible. Okay, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Uh, for if someone does not know submissive here means basically in good order, they're not out delinquents and things. You know, they're basically, you know, he can control his own family. Okay. For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He's saying it's sort of a trial run, you know, basically. You know, if somebody's a bankrupt, probably the person you don't want to have is a church treasurer. You know, they basically would sort of say, you know, gee, I don't think people want to use me to sell gym equipment. You know, just call it a lucky hunch. Even though I could get all the words down, I could tell you the reasons for it. I think I'd probably say, this is not the model we want of a success story. Okay. Okay, he may become puffed up and he says uh, he may not, must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So we have clearly, this, my point here with these, with these criteria is these are clearly specific posts. These are actual posts. They're, even though the term is a generic term, clearly they're using it in a specialized sense. Again, what we call the term of art. It's used in a specialized, it wasn't just any old guy. These, these were the elders who were appointed, you know, to be appointed an elder or an overseer. Then we have a similar list in Titus. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might uh, put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed. If anyone is above approach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Remember the priest um, Eli and his children? You know, that kind of thing, Okay. Uh, For an overseer, God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also rebuke those who contradict it. Okay, now deacons are also, we'd say, well, just helpers. We just think people help out. No, this is clearly a position in the church. Deacons likewise must be dignified. Not, uh, not double tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Uh, the reason they talk about wine and gain is they actually were the ones who maintained these things for the church. In the, uh, They actually took care of the feeding. Uh, the, the people who were poor, food was a real problem in the ancient world. People actually went hungry. So they would have food and wine was the standard drink and things, so basically they would be around a lot of money and a lot of Provisions and things. And you're saying these have got to be people who don't have a problem, okay? They can't be greedy for dishonest gain. They can't be addicted to much wine, because they're going to be they're going to be ones basically taking care of our wine cellar, okay? Um, they must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons, and if they prove themselves, uh, let them let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So testing first. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households well. Again, that constant thing is, um, you know, that example. I love it with our bishop, you know, he keeps reminding us, rightly so, that um, a bishop and a priest, you know, their first church is their household. <laughs> and the greatest thing when I see, you know, a bishop is so good with his family, I feel I can trust him because he's good with his family. How can I trust somebody if doesn't take care of his own? <laughs> You know, when people sort of desert their own family for the church, a lot of people feel like, a lot of women feel like, as wives feel, like, I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, I'm, the church is the other woman. <laughs> or, you know, children feel, I feel like an orphan. Everybody, you know. So this is saying you've you, you got to take care of your family. This is not a call to, let's give up that and move into something interesting. Okay. So that's your first church. For those who serve well as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in their faith is in Christ Jesus. Now, the original deacons, the church has always said, were that, remember, there was a dispute uh, between the, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Remember, we said, in Judaism, there were people who saw them, I said, like, Italian-Americans versus Italians. It, is, it was obviously hey, we come from the same background, but Italians would probably say, we're the real Italians, so don't tell us about it, you know, this kind of thing. And sort of wondering, you guys don't even speak Italian, or just speak a few words or something, and type of thing. And so what you had is the people who lived in the Holy Land who spoke Aramaic, which is a sister language to Hebrew. And they sort of lived the old-fashioned way in the Holy Land, looked upon themselves as being Jews differently. A Jews-Jew, John Paul talks about this, as opposed to Jews who are now basically Hell, they couldn't even speak Hebrew anymore. I'm not Hebrew, I mean Aramaic. They, had, they spoke Greek. They, they dressed like Greeks. They were pretty much like they, you know, they did all, they pretty much behaved like Greeks. They said, well, you're Jews, but you're not quite. And so there was a sort of a natural antipathy, especially in the Holy Land, saying, it's nice for you, to, it's better than nothing out there, but when you come here... We're worried about you sort of giving people wrong ideas and changing who we are. It's bad enough you act like Greeks out there. And so there was sort of a prejudice. Remember, we said they're saying, we think that people are getting uh, getting uh, getting shafted as part of the, the food distributions. So that's why, by the way, if you don't know Greek, every one of these names is a Greek name. The original deacons were all Greeks because their job was to make sure that the people who would be looked over would not be looked over. These otherwise second class uh, people wouldn't be looked over. Okay, now what happens by the end of the second century, this is really important, what's going to happen with our ministries, is as the church settles down, remember what Paul, he's going from town to town, setting up churches, we're going to continue having ministry, but basically by the end of the, of the, by the, end of the first century, early second century, it's sort of like out west, like in westerns. If first they're going in, and it's wild west, you're going out there, there's no law, there's no order, then you bring in a sheriff, then you actually get a you know, marshal, then you actually get a sheriff and then you build a schoolhouse and a general store, you get sort of settled down. And that's what happens in the church. The age of the itinerant, you know, church planners, there's still people planning, but that's gone. Basically, churches are pretty stable now. It's really like second generation on the west. And so what's happening, and also the original apostles are gone, you know, the last John of the apostles. So what happens here is, think about it, in any church you have, look at our, our, our team we have here at Res or something. In any church, in a team, you're going to have a leader. You're going to have a chief pastor. So what happens is the church saw, so out of this group of people who were called indiscriminately elders or overseers, they're saying, now that, uh, now that the apostles are gone, we see these as really being, we, we think every church needs to have a chief pastor. This, is, this, by the way, happened everywhere, universally, that one person stood out the leader. And we're going to recognize them, and they're really sort of the successors in a very special way of the apostles. So we don't have apostles, we really do. These are the new apostles. These are the ones who are in the church here. These are the apostles in the the church. And there's only one in every city. You you only have one chief pastor. And that chief pastor, we're going to use a special term, since we have these two terms, the very term episcopus, looking over, overseer, is a good way to describe a chief pastor. You know, we have a whole bunch of elders, but we have a chief pastor. Hmm. Okay. And so the idea was this is where we have, uh, so the Apostles disappear, we now have this distinction that every church, and I mean literally every church, and I'm going to show you how that works out, is going to end up having a, a chief pastor called the episcopus. Now, here's where the word bishop comes from. Say that really, f- have three beers and say it really fast and you get a bishop in English. <laughs> That's where bishop comes from. Okay, I'm not swearing on the three beers, but you get the idea, but basically it's a deformation of the word episcopus in English becoming a bishop, you know, whatever, you know, bishop, you know. So bishop is simply our way of saying overseer episcopus. Everybody else has a closer term, like, you know, they have obispo in Spanish, évêque uh, in French, etc. but they're all forms of this. So just the form, the Greek word, uh, the Greek word for overseer has been maintained. That's where we get a bishop for. Simply, he's our overseer, and as the church has always seen it, they are truly take the place of the apostles. Why is that? Because the apostles were twelve of them, and they they worked together. Remember, what did they do in Acts of the Apostles? They gathered together when there was an issue. The apostle, the elder, and the you know they, they came to it. And so, well, we'll come more into that when we talk about how the church gets structured then. So, uh, by the way, we have the witness of Ignatius of Antioch. Uh, isn't that a neat, a neat uh, picture of him? He's a terrific early martyr. Ignatius, I might have mentioned to you before, uh, he died uh, probably about one, between 105 and 115. He was actually eaten by lions in the Colosseum. And he was actually brought back. Well, this is really awful. Is The Romans, uh, for entertainment, remember, the Colosseum killed people for entertainment as well as animals. And this, is, this took a lot. You realize we used to have lions and elephants in North Africa. They used so many in the Roman games, that's why they went extinct. In the ancient world, you know, in, in the early Roman times, there were plenty of lions and elephants in North Africa. They weren't sub-Saharan. What happened is the Romans used them so often you know, for entertainment and killed them in entertainment. They loved animal fights and, you know, that they actually wiped them out. Well, the same thing is there are only so, con- so many condemned criminals to go around. So they actually had quotas of condemned criminals to bring to Rome for the games. You know, every province had, you know, said, because the idea these were all con- you know, convicted people of things, convicted of crimes, so we they're a capital punishment. So they're saying, can you, can you bring people here for us? So he was actually arrested, uh, you know, uh, uh, it, Antioch was one of the great cities of the empire, one of the three great cities, Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. An- a- Athens was like a Madison. It was a university town. It was a has-been town. It was very nice. It was university, but it wasn't a big city. The big cities were Alexandria was the biggest, you know, ba- Alexandria, Rome, and Antioch were the three great cities. Well, he was arrested, and he's actually going to be taken to Rome. He's actually being taken in, in a group of people to Rome to be put to death. So here's what's neat about his letters. He writes letters. It's the neatest thing is, because we all have them and they're great reads, is as he went on his way, different churches would send people you know, to, to pray with him and have dinner with him and say, you know, we're, here, we're with you, we're praying for you, etc. cetera. And so these people would meet him on the road, and then he'd stop, had stopover points. and the stopover point, the church would take him as a guest. And so, you know, and so what happened, he'd write them thank you letters and so we have six of those letters. And then he wrote a letter to the church in Rome, saying, hey, I'm coming, folks, just so you know I'm on my way, and telling them, don't get me off. He wanted to be witness, here's why. In the ancient world, and it's still true in the in the developing world, money answers all problems. You do understand that bribes can solve most anything. I'm not encouraging this, but the classic thing, if you're having trouble in the developing world, will be, you need a permit for that. Officer, is there something we could do about that? Yeah, you know, it's, a, yeah. yeah it's a matter of convenience. <laughs> I'm sorry, but this is often how... So in the Roman world, you can always find some well-placed person with money. Matter of fact, we have an example of that in the Acts of the Apostles. Why do you think... Remember, Festus was holding on to um, Paul for a year, and he kept calling him. He was hoping people would show up to pay him off. He was looking for a bribe. That's why he wasn't moving the case along. He was hoping, come on, already, folks. Hint, hint. Nod, nod. Wink, wink. <laughs> and so he's telling him, don't do that. Don't use money to get me off. I want to be a witness. Okay, but here's the point: in every one of these letters, it becomes this is what's enormous. One of the troubles with ancient literature and things is we don't know what's true in a given church is true of other churches. For example, we know Rez, and we know if you go to other churches, even in our own in our own uh, communion in the Anglican Church of North America, often the feel is different. We love them, our sister church, but they—they're not. There are not a lot of differences in style. You know, they, they don't all look like res, right? Uh, they have their own styles and things. So you wonder how much of this is, is the ACNA, Is how much of this is that particular church. So we might wonder in the ancient world, yeah, if he just described his church, we'd say, well, that's what they do there. That's nice. but how, what about anybody else? He's talking. We have letters to basically seven churches. And in those churches, every single one of them has a single, because he's mentioned, the bishop. And he talks about and the the council of elders and the council of deacons, in every case. And no, he's not saying this is a, uh, saying here's something you should do. He's t- this is a given. These are the people he's talking to. I want to say I want to mention. Hey, say hello to your bishop. You know, uh, you know, make sure to support those elders who are helping him out. You know, remember your deacons, honor them. Here's an example. For example, when he writes here to, to the to the church of Smyrna, you should all follow the bishop, not one of the overseers. The bishop, as Jesus Christ, follow the Father. Follow to the presbytery, that means the group, the, co- the college of, of, of priests, or, you know, of, of elders. Um, this is interesting. it's a college, and that's why when ordinations, when there's a priest ordained, that all the uh, other priests gather around him like hands on him, it's the bishop who's ordaining him. What we're doing is welcoming him into the college and we welcome you as a brother priest. So, it's not the, the ordination comes, you know, it's, it's the bishop lays, you know, sort of the ordination, but what everybody else is doing is we're, it's a college. We're welcoming, it's a, it's a club in this, you know, you belong to this. We, it's an order, that's what we call holy orders. We, that's why when a bishop is consecrated, he's consecrated, according to Nicaea, by three bishops as witnesses, but showing you're being welcomed to the college of bishops, like you know, the, the, the apostles. It's not one a one man show, it's, it, you're welcomed to a group. You know, we're lucky on behalf of all the bishops of the world, you're being welcomed as a brother bishop. Okay. So he said, and then he said, and respect your deacons as you would God's law. And then he goes on and says, no one takes any steps that has to do with the church without the bishop's approval. The only ingress that's valid is one that's celebrated by the bishop himself or by someone authorized by him, which will be universally the elders. That's their unique role. But you get the idea. Okay. And he actually wasn't saying, he said, basically, uh, where the bishop is, there is the Catholic Church. How do we know to be church? The bishop is the sign of the church. Now there are three. Uh, yes. What year was that again? Those letters. Uh, that would be like between one hundred and five uh, and one fifteen. One okay. fifteen at latest. I'm a fan of one hundred and five. Some people could be as early as ninety-five. Huh? Yeah, because we have to figure out which persecution. Right. And the questions are uh, the letters are undoubted authenticity. There is no question. I'll be very honest about things. Even when I disagree profoundly, like in biblical studies, I'm very conservative on the Bible. But I'd be the first one to tell you, I think you need to know the truth. People think Paul didn't write this letter. They're wrong But I tell you that. But no one at all in the world questions the Ignatian letter for reasons I could give you that they're authentic letters. Okay. They have a really interesting history that way. Okay, so we end up with three orders of ministry. We have the overseer, never more than one, you know, it's, it's supposed to be in a city. The idea is that there's there the bishop of the city. Now, sometimes later on, what would happen is uh, the bishop, uh, here's the idea. Originally, this idea is every, uh, Christianity was based on cities. Remember, original Christianity spread. The Roman world, by the way, was a federation of cities, if you're unaware of that. The Roman Empire was essentially a federation of cities. Cities were how they were governed. The, the hinterlands were the hinterlands. You know, they would be attached, tans- but the cities were how it was governed. And so the idea is in every city you'd have a bishop who would be the presence of the church in that city. Let's say like the church of you know the church of God at Corinth. The bishop would be the physical sign of the presence of the Catholic Church. And how will we know that of the Catholic Church not here? Because he's recognized by his brother bishops. Who is the <coughs> bishop here? That's the bishop. So you'd say, Who's the bishop of Chicago? Well, Stuart Rock. <coughs> he is the Bishop of Chicago, the one we recognize by Brother Bishops. Okay. And then we have the elders, a council of elders uh, surrounding them in each church. And then we have the, uh, the deacons. And what's going to happen with these orders is originally ancient cities, if you're unaware, were very small. Any of you been to Jericho? For example, Jericho's about the size of this building. If you look at the historical, the archaeological site, the actual site with the ancient. People lived on top of each other. People lived together in the same rooms. You understand, like five, six people in a room. Was helping, it was how people get kept warmer. Uh, heating cost money, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Also, you didn't have, you couldn't afford it because you had to be within walls. Walls cost a fortune to build, especially in deserts. We don't have natural st- I mean, for practical reasons. Like you go to Nazareth, people did not live spread out. They lived really, really, really close together, and so the idea was the church as a sign of unity. Wanted to stay, wanted to worship together in one place. But that became, as the church grew, it became impossible. You couldn't get everybody in one place, like in cities like Rome. So Rome was the first one to say Rome was such a vast city, we have to have basically satellite congregations. And this is the idea But we wanted to emphasize we didn't want we were never congregationalists. We wanted to make sure that we were tied to a bigger church. So the satellite congregations, he'd send one of his elders out there. And that's where you get the tradition of churches being led by priests instead of bishops is because he had sent them out because it it maintained the unity of all the churches in Rome under the bishop but took care of the practical matter we can't get everybody in one building and Rome is pretty big it takes a lot of people a long time to get here so that's the origin of why every church doesn't have a bishop because they wanted to emphasize unity one bishop per place and then deacons um, okay now the nature of Ordon yes sir I was just curious could you explain a little bit how Uh, yeah, I think the best time to, to do that would be. Uh, I, that's a really important question. Is why don't we do the nature of ordination, and then I think after that will be a good place because you're right. It comes about the sixth century uh, that we start using that term. Hieros is the uh, term we use in Greek, uh, and I'll tell you why that came up. That's an excellent point. Are you with me on that? I don't try to put it off. Okay, let's talk about the nature of ordination. So, what is ordination? <clears throat> It's a laying on of hands. That's the important thing. Ordination always involves the laying on. That's to remember every sacrament, whether it be the sacraments of the gospel, the sacraments of the church, has an outward sign. There have been some arguments with us in Roman, for example, but everyone now agrees the Second Vatican Council that the fundamental, visible sign of ordination is the laying on of hands. That's the you know, like the bread and wine in Eucharist, water in baptism. The fundamental sign is the laying on of hands. For ministry of word and sacrament, it does three things that are important. First thing is consecrate. What consecrate means is to put aside, it's like this. When your family buys, I guess you don't have that anymore in your generation. In our generation, we used to have special china for, for the great holidays and things and Sunday. And it was only used for those times because it was special. You, know, you only took it out. We even have Christmas china. You take out Chris, you know, special uh, you time know, you take out just at Christmas. I guess that's something that's just disappeared entirely. But the idea means you set it apart. You wouldn't use it at any other time. This is is its unique purpose. It will have no other purpose. And so the first thing is we consecrate, we set apart for the office and the work. saying This person is being set apart, specifically. They are are being identified, like putting the spotlight on, for this purpose. The next thing we have is authorize. One thing about about ordained ministry is you are a spokesman for the church. You know, it's like when you're a police officer when you put on that uniform. If you're stopping somebody, it's not just you. You represent the law. You represent our law to us, and so it's it's not. And that's why you have to behave very. You would want to be everywhere, but as a police officer, you're told when you have that uniform on when you're in, on duty, you can't just be a regular person. What would be fine for a regular person is not good enough because you represent the law. <clears throat> And when people look at you, they're not seeing you personally. They're seeing a police officer and the right to expect certain professionalism, you know, from you, a very high level. So you're, you're authorized to actually speak officially on behalf of the church. And the third is empowerment. This is, remember, we say every sacrament has an outward sign of an inward grace. The inward grace is, we actually say, receive the Holy Spirit. Is that, you know, we talk about Timothy, you know, that, you're that spirit, you know, the testimony with the laying on of hands. That, they're, that conveys the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, God never gives us a task without giving us the, uh, the strength to do it, the gift to do it. So, people also receive the gift for their ministry. They can always look there saying, All I know, like when you're a priest or deacon, you say, I don't have it, but God wouldn't put me in this position unless He's about to give it to me. <laughs> you know, that I can count on this. It's a, it's a charismatic. The important thing here is that the ministries are charismatic, that means they're gifts.